Today on The Black Goat, we talk about a classic paper by Robert Merton on scientific norms, and we discuss how it might be relevant today, and a letter about questions to ask your potential PhD advisor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. I'm with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And it's fall, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, <laughs> and uh, I got to say, fall is my favorite time of year. Like, you, people who know me probably know that my one of my all-time favorite Onion articles is Mr. Autumn Man, which we should post in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually dressed as Mr. Autumn Man for Halloween once. Um, but it's like, it's a satire of how much people get into fall. And when I read it, I was like, yeah, this is really me. Yeah. <laughs> well, also post a photo of, of Hugo acting like Mr. Autumn Man. I, uh, impersonating Sanjay, now. impersonating yes. Mr. Autumn Man. It's funny that you suggested talking about fall, Sanjay, because I walked into my class this morning, and it's the first day in Alabama that you could consider like wearing a long sleeve shirt outside of your house in the morning. Like it's been just like ridiculously hot. Um, Oh wow. Like I think, yeah, record breaking temperatures. Like it was like a hundred degrees last week. Um, And this morning I wore like a long sleeved fall colors, I would say um, shirt, like a flannel. Um, And so I walked in to teach my class today and they were like, Oh wow. Aren't you ready for fall? Um, oh that's hilarious they actually noticed it yeah they did and I didn't like yeah this is this is implicit at this point yeah I gotta say that fall is uh fall is totally like in full swing here in Oregon and I feel like fall in the Pacific Northwest kind of gets underrated because like the Northeast New England I think is probably like famous for it in fact when I was a little kid we lived in Rhode Island when I was in grade school and we would like I think a couple of times we went on road trips up to New Hampshire specifically just to look at fall colors, which is as a little kid was like the most infuriatingly like tiresome thing you could do. But now I'm totally like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> but like the the colors here in Oregon are pretty amazing, like the the leaves changing and all that. There's some really cool stuff. So it feels totally full on fall right now. I have nothing against fall itself, but I hate that it means that winter's coming and also that summer is nine months away. Those mm-hmm. things suck. That, so I, oh, that's I, so funny. I hold fall, that is, fall. fall is my favorite season, and I actually I actually think summer is overrated. I love summer. It's, oh no, it's like it's hot, it's sticky. You like you gotta do shit that like gets sand in parts of your body <laughs> you don't want it. It's just like it's it's totally overrated. No, summer's underrated. I think summer is underrated too. Like nobody ever says summer when you ask people their favorite season. Yeah, like, but it's obviously the best Every- season. <laughs> Everybody's t- you clearly you guys aren't talking to school kids very much because <laughs> you ask them their favorite season, every one of them says summer. Um, That's because I it's like it's it's hot it's sticky you like you gotta like you can't dress based on how you want to dress you have to dress based on like accommodating the weather it's you know like and i also just like it's 
boring because there's no like being on an academic calendar you know as a student and now you know as a professor it's like there's not enough going on it's unstructured i love that like, I, I love that college towns uh, are empty in the summer it feels like i oh, it, it no. feels like you can like do anything like there's nobody around and i just love <laughs> the the energy of of fall plus like you can't wear sweaters Don't, you can't uh, wear like you can do anything you want in summer because you can find cool places you can find air conditioning (laughs) but when it's cold outside you can't find warm places like there's not like a summer-like atmosphere anywhere like nowhere is like like the the closest thing is like a a fire you can sit by a fire but that's still a very winter atmosphere whereas like in Mm -hmm. summer you can go inside air conditioning most places like if you go to the movie theater it's freezing if you go on an airplane it's freezing like there's still plenty of places where you need a sweater but where are you going to go on in a argument. tank top in the winter? You Thank you, Alexa. <laughs> and also, like, sitting in front of a fireplace is so much more fun than, like, sitting in, like, a freezing movie theater. No, sitting outside on a lawn chair when it's, like, nice out. Oh, that's so nice. I'm not contesting that summer is nice. I'm just saying, like, this, like, idea that you can't find opposite season-like spaces. I'm not Do you ever wear them. your summer clothes in the winter? No. Do you ever wear, like warm clothes in the summer yes no yes you do i have to put a sweater everywhere this is i think that i think this is we're now getting into like metabolic individual differences between me and samine but no i also i just love the coziness of fall like when it it starts to get darker early but it's not like winter where it's you know you know completely dark but it's like it's getting a little darker earlier and and just i like i like fall are you one of those people who likes it when daylight savings time ends no i like uh i can't remember which is which i like when when there's more daylight during the daytime whichever one yeah the that spring is forward. the one Wait, the one that's daylight savings the one that's time not good coming up yeah i like when daylight that, savings time ends you do and it the gets one that's darker not earlier? good oh. for because morning I like that people it's light in the morning when i wake up yeah yeah i want it to be light all the time which is why i like summer. yeah we're not gonna settle this i think no i don't think we're well what what is setting aside the which is the best season argument and just talking about fall for fall's (laughs) sake what what do you like about fall besides the fact that it's not winter i don't like (laughs) 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 but yeah i dislike that fall has become this like industry that's very associated with like pumpkin spice and like nutmeg and things like that because those aren't like my favorite things about fall although i do like sweaters and i think that 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 is a common thing to appreciate that people appreciate about fall um yeah i'm i'm not super into the pumpkin spice thing i mean i don't begrudge anybody if if they're into that um that to me is (laughs) i judge you you judge people is it is it literally anything pumpkin spice or is it like specific pumpkin spice things um it's more i think it's more the symbolism because like so i don't like um like sweet drinks generally but i love pumpkin Mm -hmm. pie and that's like i think what people are going for in terms of the flavor yeah another thing that is i think widely underappreciated is that a lot of tiki cocktails have uh fall baking spices in them Mm -hmm. and so if you're into the whole tiki thing that's a a way to sneak in your pumpkin spice without calling it pumpkin spice or fall or anything like that. what's a tiki cocktail like uh you know like tiki bars like the the scorpion bowls and and you know all the the sort of 
kitschy South Pacific yeah. Islander kind of stuff. I actually don't um, know what that is, yeah. but there there's a bar in Davis uh, where they have, I think it's, yeah, it's a tiki bar and they have a drink called the Wiki Wacky Woo that I'm pretty sure is a tiki cocktail. Oh, yeah. I've been there with you. Yeah. Yeah, a good friend of mine from grad school, uh, my office, one of my office mates in grad school opened up, uh, she and her husband opened up a couple of tiki bars. And so we used to go there, like after we graduated, like, you know, she, you know, stayed in the Bay Area and and got a um, got like a regular job. But then her her husband opened up uh, these tiki bars and and it was a lot of fun because it's just like kind of and there's a whole like subculture around tiki bars. Um, so people, uh, there's like people that go around and they go to tiki bars and that's what they do. And, and they, uh, um, like ironically or unironically, I mean, it's hard to tell. Like they're, I think a lot of them, like they, they, it's kind of a sort of lifestyle for them. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's super ironic, like other than in the way that being part of any subculture kind of is always, Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, anyway. So I really like tiki cocktails. And they're also just, I, like, I can't drink one all the time, but... Uh, um, Is there, just, like, something that makes it a tiki cocktail? Like, I'm picturing things that are very, like, sweet and fruit, ju- fruit juicy, but is that wrong? Yeah, I think that a lot of them are sweet. Uh, most of them involve rum. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of the major... It's this, like, interesting sort of... And I don't know all the history of it. Um, it's this interesting intersection of a lot of the, like... The, the it's rum which is a sort of caribbean based uh um ingredient um but a lot of like coconut and pineapple and fruit juices like a sort of tropical fruit juices and a lot of south pacific uh cultural markers which is kind of pretty far from the caribbean but uh yeah so i don't know the whole history maybe it's because like sailors and people in the navy always had rum i'm not quite sure i should know this because Martin wrote a book. Martin and Rebecca wrote a book, which I have, and I read, but it was a long time ago, about tiki culture. Mm-hmm. Anyway, how did we get to this from fall? I don't know. The spices. You mentioned <laughs> spices. The spices. Spices. Well, uh, should we move on from spices to our letter of the week? Uh, yeah. yeah. Let's do that. Um, okay. Hello. I will be applying to PhD programs this fall. Oh, nice segue. I was wondering if you had questions you think are important to ask potential advisors. A sample of my list so far. One, open science practices. Are these taught to advisees? Are you open to these practices? Two, lab meetings. What is the structure? Three, collaborating with other professors. Is this allowed versus discouraged? Lastly, I took the GRE in 2016 and got mediocre scores, but I feel as though my other qualifications and master's program experience offset the score. I know, I know, but stick with me. How should I address this in my personal statement, or will I most likely be automatically sorted out due to the score? Thanks in advance for your advice, anonymous palindrome. Um, so we thought this might be kind of a nice letter to do now, since people might be sort of um, considering applying to grad school and starting to put their applications together right now. Um, the, so the, I guess there's sort of two parts to the question. One is important questions to ask somebody who could potentially be your advisor. Um, and the second is the, the question about the GRE score. Um, and th- since the GRE one is maybe a little bit more straightforward, you guys probably know how to answer this for your, your schools. But for Alabama, we have a cutoff, and I don't know what it is. Um, 
but there is a cutoff below which you would be sorted out and your application would be sorted out in the initial phase when it's like um, with uh, one of the administrative staff people here. Um, but it might not be the case if you emailed an advisor or potential advisor first um, and ask them to take a look at or keep a look at for your application. Um, so there are times when people don't meet our GRE cutoff, but they get considered anyways um, because they have gotten the attention of um, somebody that they could potentially work with who's willing to consider them even though they are below the cutoff. Um, so if you're worried that you might be missing a cutoff, it might be worthwhile to, I mean, this is a good advice anyways, would be to contact people who um, could potentially be your advisor and start a conversation with them independently of the um, application process. Make sure they're accepting applica applicants. Make sure they'd be willing to consider your application. Um, is that how it works for you guys? No, we don't have a cutoff. No. Um, so we can sort through all the applications. So each faculty member could sort on whatever criteria they want. I'm actually not even, I don't think we can filter by GRE scores. The system we have, you can filter by like whether they mention you as a potential advisor or which subfield they expressed interest in and things mm -hmm. like that. But I don't think we can filter by GRE scores or GPA or anything like that. And each faculty member is different about how much they weight GRE scores, but it, I don't think it would get you automatically sorted out by anybody. And then some people wouldn't care at all. And some people would care some or medium amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oregon is similar. We, we, and we, it's shifted a lot. So we used to have uh, um, a cutoff that was based on a combination of GRE and GPA. Um, but there were, there were exceptions to that even back then. Um, and one of the exceptions was having a master's degree. So there were certain things that, that kind of guaranteed a person would review regardless of, of what, what those markers were. Um, uh, yeah, and, and we, but we've shifted now to that model that's similar to what Samin describes where um, it's actually a little bit different by area. So our social personality area still does, we have multiple readers and, and we do more of a committee approach, but the, the other areas in our department are much more individual advisor. Um, and we've been talking a lot. Uh, we're probably going to be making some changes the next year about how we do our admissions to, because to, one of the things that we really care about is interdisciplinary people and kind of sorting by areas tends to miss people, although we've done a pretty good job of catching people. Anyway, this is getting far from the topic. I think the something that you can do is, if you're the applicant, is contact programs and, and ask them if they use a GRE cutoff. Mm -hmm. And, and that, would, that would be a first, hopefully they would tell you. I'd like to think they'd be transparent. And you could probably ask just an administrator. You wouldn't need to ask a prospective advisor. But mention um, that you are finishing a master's if you do that, because I think mm -hmm. it probably isn't uncommon that having a master's puts you in a different category. Yeah. 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 And so you could you could find out if, if you're going to be triaged. And then um, if you are, then then do what Alexa said and, and contact a prospective advisor and say, hey, you know, I mean, the other thing I, I, I suspect that I feel like the trend has been away from cutoffs. In fact, that there's now the whole GRE Grexit mm -hmm. thing, which we probably shouldn't get into because we can do a whole a whole episode on that. But um, uh, I mean, another, in terms of like framing your your application, even if there's not a cutoff, but if you're concerned about how that's going to look, I think there are things. 
I would say the the best case scenario is is like the personal statement should emphasize your accomplishments. I think most people, if they're being sort of rational about the process, will say like, well, if you've got evidence that you've done the kinds of things you're supposed to do in graduate school, then the scores matter less. And you can also get your letter writers to comment on that. So I've I've been on both sides of this as a letter writer and as a reader of letters that, you know, saying in the letter, hey, look, you know, this person's, you know, I was surprised by this person's GRE score because actually they've been doing this quantitatively heavy work in my lab. And so their GRE quant doesn't reflect what I know that they can do. And so just don't weight that too much. Um, And that's something you can say a little bit for yourself. But uh, um, I don't think there's much if your letter writer backs you up. I think that's a stronger case because then it says doesn't sound like you're making excuses for yourself. I wouldn't I wouldn't mention in your personal statement unless there was a specific event or or in or circumstance that is relevant so if yeah like you got in a car accident on the way to taking the gres or you whatever or other circumstances ongoing circumstances in your life or something like that that's relevant but just like i don't think my gre scores reflect my abilities to me means nothing in the personal statement it does mean something coming from the letter writers yeah. um, so just show don't tell right so if you got a low score on gre verbal write a really good personal statement Maybe send a draft of a paper. If you're in a master's program and you have a research paper, maybe you can upload that as an attachment or post it as a preprint and link to it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's quant, then talk about what your quant skills are and any evidence of you using them in your research, things like that. Um, Yeah. And what about the part of the question that asks what you should, what questions you should ask to advisors? One thing that I considered, and I usually ask this question in reverse to um, potential grad students that might want to work with me um, is about like preferences in terms of advising style. So I think there's like a, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind in terms of a relevant dimension is sort of like how hands-on versus hands-off somebody is. Um, I think that I'm like relatively hands-on. And so, I mean, I might not be super compatible with somebody who actually I think I would probably just give someone a lot of independence if they wanted it, but um, probably a more common situation is a student who needs a really hands-on advisor. um, And it would be good to know whether your advisor can give you that kind of attention or not, or whether that's their style or not. Yeah, but I would be careful about how you frame it, because if you say, like, I need a lot of hand-holding or something like that, that might count against you. But you could ask it in a neutral way of, like, what's your advising style? How often do you meet with your students? Things like Mm -hmm. that. I, and I would ask the graduate students and former graduate students of the advisor that question too. I would also mm-hmm. ask like, what are your the advisor's biggest strengths and weaknesses or flaws? You could ask that mm-hmm. to the advisor, but I would especially ask it to people who've worked with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and concrete questions like, how often do you meet with your advisor? How often do you asking the grad students how often they meet with the advisor? Asking the advisor how often they meet with the students? How long does it take to get comments back on a draft of a paper? Like, I think a lot of times, like, someone might say, yeah, I'm really hands-on. But then when you ask those concrete questions, that suggests something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of these I would wait to ask until you have an interview or the equivalent. Like, if they're, they express interest, they say you've made some short list or something like that, then I would ask those questions. But when you email potential advisors at the very beginning of the process, they haven't seen your application yet, I wouldn't ask a lot of questions. I think most... Well, there's variation, but many potential advisors don't have the time to go in depth with everybody who emails them. So they first want to see the applications and narrow it down, and then they might be 
very happy to have like a Skype conversation or, yeah. or they'll have a campus visit or something like that. And then you can ask more of those questions. Yeah, I agree. I think what you probably want to accomplish in an initial email is a just expressing your interest, but also showing the person that you know what they do. And there's like some reason why you think that your own experience and expertise would, would complement like that of the advisor. Um, yeah, that's what I would look for. I mean, I don't, I feel like the, the pre-application emails don't even need to go that far. I mean, I think if you, if you, you know, it, if you don't know whether the person's taking students, it's reasonable to ask that. But uh, I just, it, it's, you know, the, the number of these emails that people get gets multiplied out. And it's like, let your application, like if, it, if it's something, if it's something that would determine whether or not you're going to apply and pay the fee and all that, that's relevant, like mm-hmm. whether they're taking students. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I just think this, this stuff and and I think a lot of students get the advice that they're supposed to make contact and get the person to know them mm-hmm. and blah 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 and and often the like either I'm just asking because I'm I was told to ask questions or the like I'm asking these questions that it's way too early in the process for me to be asking don't necessarily help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not really sure why we have the whole emailing thing because I'm gonna look at all the applications that mention me by name anyway. I think. I think I at least skim 80 to 90% of the applications that that select me as a potential advisor. So mm-hmm. that you don't need to email me for that to happen. I think the exception might be, I mean, even then I would catch it in the application, but like if someone is really familiar with my work or, and or open science replicability stuff, like I want to make sure I notice that, but that should be clear from the application. So I'm not sure even then that emailing is that important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would say like just about the questions, the the letter writer talks about asking about open. So if we're talking about it at the appropriate time, right? The talks about asking about open science practices, about collaborating with other professors. It's it's like if if these things are important to you, then yeah, you should ask about them. Um, you know, at the, you know, if they do Skype or phone interviews at that stage or at the on campus stage, whenever it it's sort of important. Um, uh, yeah, because some of these, and and I would say like decide how important these are and then be willing to sort of stick to them. Like if, because some advisors and some programs are going to be very constrained on some of these things, right? Like some advisors are just not going to be up for you doing pre-registration and things like that. And if that's important to you, you should know that. Um, Some labs are very much, and some advisors are very much like you work with me and only with me and you don't collaborate with other people. And uh, um, and they might tell you that explicitly, uh, but more commonly, it's just like it, when you talk to the grad students, as Samin suggested, they'll tell you like, oh, yeah, like so and so one person once worked with another professor and it didn't, you know, our advisor said it was OK, but then they got super territorial or afterwards mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and if if that's important to you and and it's fine to have different preferences like there might be somebody and you're just super into what they do and you want to go really deep and that's fine um but if you want to be able to collaborate if you're more of a fox than a hedgehog um it's totally fine to make that your selection criteria or at least a very strong factor mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think the advice about asking other people about the person is really good um 
what would you guys suggest about like asking other faculty about the the that individual faculty member as an advisor in the same like faculty at at the yeah. institution uh, i would yeah i don't I, I would be really careful i think they can't say much but and it, it, both when with everybody you ask i think read between the lines so if you ask and they're like oh yeah that seems they're fine or whatever that's bad usually mm-hmm. You should expect people who've worked with that person to say positive things if they're a good advisor and so on. Yeah, I don't think asking other faculty at the, at the same department will help. I think it's basically the same as asking the advisor, and it might look bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think asking faculty at other departments, so at your current institution, asking your current advisor um, if you have one, uh, if you know any other faculty, things like that. Like, I'm shocked how often students will come to me with a list and that list undergrads and that list will include people I know to be maybe even abusive advisors or at least very, very difficult mean advisors or have a track record of sexual harassment or things like that. And I feel bad that that information has to be passed on in such an (laughs) inefficient way. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you can talk to multiple people who don't have a conflict of interest, who aren't, you know, at the same university as that potential advisor or, and again, you have to be kind of delicate in how you bring it up. Like, don't ask, is this a sexual harasser? But ask like, what do you know about this person? Are they easy to work with? Blah, blah. Make sure if you're a woman, maybe ask other women because there might be things that men are less likely to be aware of or think of as a relevant factor. Same with other kinds of groups that you belong to. Um, Those things are more common than, I think most people, if you have a list of like eight or 10 potential advisors, there's probably at least one person on that list who would be a bad advisor in these non-scientific ways, but these like interpersonal mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really hard to know. And and their colleagues aren't going to tell you. They're obviously not going to tell you themselves. Their grad students might allude to it, um, but a lot of it comes from these un- unofficial networks, of whisper networks and things like that, which is really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, have we, uh, do you feel like we've answered the letter? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, the, the letter writer signed it anonymous palindrome and I'm trying to figure out. Maybe their name is Bob. (laughs) I have no idea what their name is, but. That is exactly what I thought. Ah, okay. Or another Um, palindrome. Well, shit. We just outed (laughs) Bob. No, we don't know. I don't know. Well, yeah, I I have no idea either. I don't think that I know. <laughs> anyway, anonymous palindrome. Thank you for writing your letter. And uh, listeners, if you would like to email us with a letter or any feedback or anything else, you can reach us letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod, where I think Samin is going to be posting a picture of Hugo imitating me, imitating an onion article person. Um, you can uh, find us on our website, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. We are on a great many different podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. And if you rate us, uh, kind of the big dog is uh, iTunes, but if you rate us anywhere, those services often will use that to, to let other people know about us. So if, if you do that, that's a way to help other people find out about us. Um, And uh, we're always grateful for people that listen uh, and listen and lurk or listen and send us letters or feedback or or tweet at us or what have you. So we always enjoy that. 
So our main topic today, we wanted to talk about uh, a paper uh, by Robert Merton and also kind of broaden out the discussion. Um, and this is, we'll, we'll post a link in the show notes. Uh, it's kind of funny because the, the version of this that I found and that we passed around to read is a chapter in an edited volume. The chapter is called The Normative Structure of Science. But the, uh, the footnote on the title page says, originally published as Science and Technology in a Democratic Order, Journal of Legal and Political Sociology, and this is later published as Science and Democratic Social Structure. So this paper has at least three names, um, which clearly Merton was doing this before the era of Google Scholar, because, you know, you want to like get all your citation, or maybe this was a smart strategy, actually. Like if it's going to be cited a lot, you, you get like out. a three boost on your H index <laughs> if all three get cited enough. Um, I don't know if this was good gaming or bad gaming, but uh, of course this was uh, a good half a century plus three quarters of a century before any of this shit mattered. Um, published in 1942, The Normative Structure of Science. And this is a paper that uh, I, I feel like has had a resurgence uh, in the open science movement. I mean, I suspect that sociologists of science probably, this is this is probably like a, a sort of go-to paper for a long time, but I feel mm -hmm. like the, the sort of psychology open science movement, a lot of people talk about this paper. And, and kind of as an overview, Merton is, he's writing about, uh, uh, so Merton is a sociologist and he's, he's writing about sociology of science and kind of how science works. And he talks about how science is governed by four norms. And maybe we can kind of run through those uh, really quickly and then sort of dive into it. So the, the norms are universalism, which is the idea that uh, um, uh, science is universal, meaning that anybody has that that it's a it's about the the science and not the scientist. That anybody has standing regardless right. of their place in society to participate in science. Mm -hmm. There's commu communism in the original, which people sometimes change to communalism, although it's an interesting, it actually, like some of the language really echoes communism because he talks about like communal ownership uh, of scientific goods. But the idea is that um, you don't get to use secrecy or guard information to advance in science, that scientific knowledge uh, should be open and belong to everybody. There's disinterestedness, which I think we should get into because the, the exposition of this is complex, but it's the idea that... Um, Scientific work doesn't advance personal interests. It's for scientific progress, not for the interests of the people doing it. Mm -hmm. And then organized skepticism, which we might also, because it's a little, in, in the actual paper, it's a little bit hard to parse out. But the way I've always interpreted this, and maybe we can get into this, is the organized part is, is Merton saying that scientists do all of this stuff um, in an organized way by, by forming institutions and by working collectively to, to advance these things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, but we can get into what that means. So, so you know, Merton, and and so we should kind of maybe get into some of these in in more detail. I think um, one of the ways that this has come up recently in the last few years a lot, and it's it's sort of an interesting distinction that I'm not entirely clear where Merton himself would stand on it. But I feel like a lot of the discussion, I'm curious what you two think of this, a lot of the discussion in the last decade or so in psychology has been bringing out values as a explicit thing that we talk about, that what do we want science to be? How do we want it to be? Mm -hmm. And these norms 
often in current discourse get recast as values that scientists yeah. uphold. And I'm, I'm curious what you think of that, because a norm doesn't have to be a value. A norm can just be a thing we all agree on to make things work well. Right. Um, you know, we all agree to drive on the right side of the road instead of, oh, well, that's actually a law. But like walking down the hallway, we all agree to walk on the same side of, as we drive on so that people don't bump into each other. That's not like a value it's just like a thing we all agreed on to make walking down hallways work. Right. And you could argue that these norms are just like a thing we all do to make science do sciencey things. But I think to a lot of people, they take them as, as values. I'm curious what you two think my, of that. Like, my perception of how that kind of conversation has evolved is that I think when, when the replication crisis like first started to occur and when people started to talk about new like suggest new ways of practicing science and new research practices and things like that um i think when people were faced with um objections to those suggestions and skepticism um sometimes people would like hit a wall where they would like assume that we all had the same basic values, if you want to call call it that. Um, and so I think like as a rhetorical device, it's become common to say like, to start from those values and rather than say like, okay, obviously we all care about transparency. So given that like blah, 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 then we should do pre-registration or whatever um, is to sort of say like, well, if you can agree with me that like this basic value is important, then I think that these other things follow. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like it, it serves this function of a, um, I guess, making your basic assumptions clear from the start, but also in a way like allowing that people could have different values. Um, but I think that's, like I say, I think that's sort of a rhetorical device because I don't think that people commonly voice values that run contrary to Merton's or like, I think that might be unpopular. Though I think that that would be an interesting discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not that uncommon. Like in the discussion of blinding and peer review, there are plenty of people who think that who the author is is relevant and it's totally fine to take that into account, um, even more specifically to take their status into account, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think there is some social desirability pressure not to endorse the counter norms as they're sometimes called but mm -hmm. but I think it's not that uncommon but I did I mean I, I don't know I thought from this reading that it was pretty clear that Merton meant these as more than norms that there was a strong moral component and he talked about that these aren't just technical prescriptions but moral prescriptions and he talks about like the importance the role of moral indignation directed toward contraventions of the ethos um, so it reminded me of like the kind of back and forth we've had in the reform movement about whether this is about scientific integrity or not, or whether we should just talk about it as tools and technical prescriptions, like habits or whatever that we should get mm -hmm. into and not have punishment, not like, you know, use any sticks, only use carrots and things like that. Um, but I thought, I mean, one of the things I, I like about this framing of it is that it does, doesn't pretend not to be moral or ethical. It, I thought Merton was basically embracing that there is a moral component to this. Yeah, I guess maybe for me the complication is, um, and and to me this is this comes out the most clearly in the disinterestedness, in the way he talks about disinterestedness is is that there's 
you can because Merton is coming from a very sociological perspective, and so you can talk about individuals having values or having moral outrage as from a collective perspective, those individual processes are are kind of instrumental in and of themselves, right? And 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 disinterestedness is is almost the other way around in, in some sense. But um, you know, the the like the fact that individuals get morally outraged produces a certain outcome for science as a collective enterprise. And so that's kind of how we get there. Um, and and conversely, that I think maybe we should get into it because the disinterestedness section is is one of my favorite ones. Yeah, it's by ones, far the most I think interesting, it, I think. Yeah, I think, I think it really... Um, uh, it really, it really sort of. If when you read this, if you if you come to this with, so there's a kind of like uh, folk concept of disinterestedness in science, which is that scientists are these kind of dispassionate, extra objective people who are just super rational, right? This is kind of like a stereotype of scientists, maybe or something like that. And and so the this idea that when you say scientists are disinterested, they're supposed that's supposed to be like at the individual level, like we're we're just supposed to be really extra good at not being biased and weighing evidence carefully and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Merton um, Merton really like he he sort of sets that up yeah. at the beginning of the section and then he smashes it down and he's like you might think that scientists are these especially virtuous people right um, and he's like nope they're not except um, he says they're yeah. not by nature but then he says the system makes them so so that's so it's very deceptive because he seems to be saying look scientists aren't special they're not different blah blah but then he says that what happens in science the the like bad behavior is punished and and criticized and scrutinized so much and so i'm just going to read one part uh, he he talks about like how sure you might think because there's a lot of competition for achievement and so on that people might there there may well be generated incentives for eclipsing rivals by illicit means but such impulses can find scant opportunity for expression in the field of scientific research cultism informal cliques prolific but trivial publications these and other techniques may be used for self-aggrandizement, but in general, spurious claims appear to be negligible and ineffective. So he says we might have a natural tendency to do these things, but they're kept in check and we don't actually do them. So behaviorally, he seems to be saying we are much better than non-scientists, not because of our natural disposition to be better. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that- yeah. And that's sorry. That That's yeah. That's I, I think I think we're saying the same yeah. thing. That's kind of the point is that he's saying that, that our behavior our behavior is becomes disinterested because of collectively how we're organized. Right. So it's not that we have a disposition or an attitude that's that's disinterested. It's because and and we should get into how realistic this is descriptively, mm-hmm. but he's saying at least yeah. prescriptively that the way science is supposed to work and he thinks it does work this right. way so that in his work it's kind of blended but at least if you separate out the prescriptive that what makes science disinterested is not us having virtuous dispositions or attitudes it's that we hold each other to account that you can't get away with according to merton you can't get away with too much of the self-interested behavior because the institutions of science the fact that you have that others can scrutinize your claims and that there's peer review and these other things Um, prevent that from being the sort of dominant expression of your behavior. Right. I guess like I, I think it's sort of interesting in the context of like what we were talking about 
um, in terms of whether he's talking about these as values or norms. And it does seem, I like I do think there's like a moral tone to what he's talking about, but at the same time, in the disinterestedness section, he seems to be saying like, we can't, we can't really expect individual people to be these like saints. Um, and so he, he writes in that section, which I think sort of summarizes some of the stuff we've been talking about, um, a passion for knowledge, idle curiosity, altruistic concern with the benefit of humanity, and a host of other special motives have been attributed to the scientist. The quest for distinctive motives appears to have been misdirected. It is rather a distinctive pattern of institutional control of a wide range of motives, which characterizes the behavior of scientists. So I feel like he, in a way, is calling for these, I guess, like values to be instituted at like an institutional level, um, rather than really like being optimistic about it being um, embraced at an individual level. Which yeah, I guess I... You know, there's two extremes. One is saying scientists are noble by disposition, and so therefore we can just trust them to do the right thing. And he definitely rejects that. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't go all the way to the other extreme, which would be to say, look, scientists are going to behave in self-interested ways, so we need to, like, catch those things and punish them and so on. He seems to think there's some, like, middle ground where we can institute structures that discourage those things from even happening in the first place, which that seems super idealistic to me. Like he says that fraud and irresponsible claims and things like that are extremely rare, Yeah, which like that, that level of, I think it's more realistic to expect institutional control at the level of catching those things, not at the level of discouraging them from even coming into play or happening. So I did, mm-hmm. I knew he wasn't so idealistic as to think that scientists are noble by disposition and pure and all that, but he still seemed way more idealistic than I expected, given that he rejects that that very idealistic position. He still takes one that's fairly you, idealistic about that you can root out those motives, basically. You can get people to not behave badly. I thought he would say you can you can just discriminate the bad behavior from the good behavior institutionally. But yeah. he's saying more than that. Do you think that. that he's too optimistic about institutions or too optimistic about people? Is that that he's saying, like, yeah, if you if you give people these, this like framework, then people will be these like saints that we mistakenly thought they were on their own. Or do you think he's, he's giving too much power to institutions to just like eliminate that kind of behavior? Cause I agree that he's too optimistic overall. Yeah. I mean, he seems to think that what's happening is that scientists care so much about their peers opinion of them that they wouldn't risk exaggeration and, you know, illicit means and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the accountability they have to their compeers, he says. And I think that's idealistic about both, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I think people care about a lot of other things too. And they might be able to make up for the lost respect they have within their small community by making a lot of money and being popular with lay people or whatever. Um, but also, yeah, institutions just aren't that effective at catching things and, and punishing them and so on. So, yeah, I think both. He's idealistic about both. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I, I maybe have a slightly different read, uh, or a, a, sort of what I pull out of this, this section in this paper as a whole. So because I think in the paper he he is blurring the descriptive and prescriptive. Right? He's yeah. saying mm-hmm. he's saying there's kind of a like how is science supposed to work but then he's also saying it actually does work that way and so so you know when i read this i kind of have to tease those things out but 
what I take on the the how science could or I, I'd put it as how yeah how science could work not even should um, is he's he's saying to the extent that we do this accountability and institutional control and it's really interesting reading it because some of the language he uses the word policing for example and he uses that in a very approving way and it's funny how in the last decade that's become a slur the replication police mm-hmm. and and the stasi and and all that kind of stuff right but he he's so i think there's a sort of like a, a theoretical argument that is to the extent that we institute these accountability mechanisms institutional control policing checking each other's work to the extent that we do that that will produce this outcome that we want which is disinterested science at the collective level and then where I, I think he goes astray is that he, he and I, I don't know enough about the history of 1940s science, maybe this was true then, although I wouldn't be surprised if he was rosy even for his time, but he, he's sort of saying science does work this way, right? But to me, it, what it reminds me of a little bit is how like, you know, in, in economic theory, you have like these abstract arguments about like capitalism and the invisible hand. And then you have in, in reality, people game the system and people uh, do things that actually make markets inefficient. Uh, they they cheat. They they, you know, we have monopolies. We have, you know, market, you know, manipulation and that kind of stuff. And the it's kind of a similar thing where he's saying like, if we do this enough, or the more we do this, the more disinterested science will be. And I think the the thing that he maybe underestimates is the extent to which people will find ways around this because they are motivated by individual advancement and prestige and money and those kinds of things. And so part of the process of creating those institutional controls is being realistic and being savvy and being informed by meta-scientific research and all the other mm-hmm. stuff about actual human behavior and what it actually takes to create institutions that will, you know, keep the things people do in check. Yeah, I think I just don't think it's even possible. Like, I think you're saying it's a way that science could be maybe in in a very, very abstract sense of could. But he thinks this could lead and in fact has led to a virtual absence of fraud. I just don't think that no matter how strong the policing and the exacting scrutiny and all that is, I don't think it would ever result in a system where there's a virtual absence of not just fraud, but like all yeah. these other illicit behaviors. So I think the system I, should assume those yeah. things are happening rather than... I, exactly. And I think I think that's too rosy, but I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't think the the goal should be maximizing the absence of fraud. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a, the more we do it, the more, the closer we get. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we should look at like, what are the things we could be doing that don't have big downside costs? And we should do those things. And then of the things that do have downside costs, we balance it out yeah. and, and make the calculation. I would just say there's a danger in being naive and thinking that the system could stop people from even giving into the temptation to use illicit means, because then I think some of this like reaction to the reform movement about like, don't we don't you trust your fellow colleagues? Like, isn't shouldn't we have trust in each other and things like that comes from this very idealistic view that because we do hold each other accountable, because we have transparency and so on, we can assume people aren't going to do illicit things because that would be taking such a huge risk. So I think we just need to be realistic that even with accountability, people, are, some people are going to take that risk. Some people are going to try the illicit means. 
So that's what that's the problem I have with his vision is that it assumes that the controls, institutional controls, could be so strong that it basically eradicates the bad behavior, which I think then it seems mean to assume that the bad behavior could be there. Um, I just think we should always assume the bad behavior could be there, even with strong institutional controls. I mean, I think this this would be a really interesting meta-scientific question, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, the way, and I don't know enough about like physics to, to have an informed, even layperson opinion, right? But the way some people talk about and defend physics is by saying, that there's so much transparency and also there's so much of a concentration of multiple people working on the same problems, which I think promotes the kind of scrutiny and competition, good competition that Merton talks about. And it would be interesting, I don't know exactly how you do this, but as a meta-scientific question, to, to look within or across fields at the extent to which people are doing these things and see whether that is related to markers of replicability and the speed with which errors get corrected and yeah, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I absolutely I, think I it's related. It I just think the ceiling is lower than Merton thinks it is, and I think that matters. That's all I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that, I mean, Samin, you brought up the trust issue. I feel like I've heard a very different, when people say, don't you trust people, I feel like I've heard a very different backing yeah. to that, which is this this kind of, like, how dare you say that scientists aren't good people? Mm-hmm. That's in the context in which I hear people bringing up trust. That's often. Yeah, but I've also I've heard, heard like only really bad people would engage in misconduct. Like I've heard that kind of thing. Like, it's so rude to imply that somebody might have taken a shortcut or intentionally used bad methods. I think we should methods imply that it's because it's so bad to engage in misconduct. And I think that we But should... so rare is different than so bad. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know what to assume in terms of like the frequency of let's say fraud because i i mean i know that there are studies on the frequency of fraud that estimated like you know between like one and two percent but i think it's very hard to estimate the frequency of fraud for obvious reasons um but yeah i mean i think that like one of the reasons people say like okay if we change these um rules and norms and now to let's say like not report uh one of your conditions or not report like your exclusion criteria or something it becomes like a lie um i think that's like yeah it's the next step of saying like we know or we should be able to be confident that the vast majority of people will not like break this rule there's a difference between it would be nice if we could be confident of that and saying we are confident of that. I think a lot of people are saying, look, we... Right, but I, we ha- I don't think that you know. And so I think that there's utility in giving people the benefit of the, of the doubt. I think there's also a lot of risk. There's a lot of risk in assuming it's what's extremely the, rare and that only... What's the risk, though? Because then you're not going to put in as many checks and balances. It's going to be really risky for a critic to come out and say, I think maybe this person knew that what they were doing was like hiding important information from readers or you know, that they were doing it for motivated reason or self-interested reason. I think if we consider that Mm. so rare that like it shouldn't be brought up as a plausible hypothesis unless you have positive evidence of it, then it makes catching it, if it is common, much, much less likely. I mean, I guess I don't, I don't think that like saying that it's really bad and probably rare necessarily means that you like don't put checks and balances in place or that you can never use it as a explanation. I mean, I've, used, I've seen people often say that because it's so rare, it's unfair to raise it as a, to put it on the table as a potential explanation for a pattern of results. 
Well, I think what people do now is they wait for really, 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 really strong evidence, which I think is what we should do. I mean, we're conflating fraud and other things, but like, I think that for things short of fraud, but still knowingly wrong, like, you know, omitting a condition and not telling people that you did that or something like that. Um, I think we shouldn't necessarily have to wait for really, really strong evidence to put it on the table, right? Like, I'm not saying to accuse someone of doing it, but to just say, here are some of the ways this res- this inexplicable pattern of results could have come about. It could have been accidental. It could have been, you know, these questionable practices that are worse than accidental. It could have been other things. And I think having the attitude that most scientists are not going to do something that they that would make them look bad if they were caught, like that that's extremely rare, means that we can't consider that one of the possible explanations when I think not the fraud one, but the still intentional bad behavior that's not the level of fraud is actually, it's very plausible that it's common and it should be on the table when there's an inexplicable or irreproducible pattern of results. So I think there's a, there's a dilemma that, that requires imbalancing, which is that if you, so the, the sort of the more moral condemnation you put on a behavior, it does, it has both of these effects. So, so if you don't put enough, then people will just do it because there's no downside. If you put too much, then uh, it becomes costly to accuse somebody of it. And, and I think when you, when you couple that with a high assumption of base rate, so, so if you, if you say, I think this happens a lot, and I think it's pretty bad, I think people just don't, want to one people don't want to say that and two i think it has kind of a demoralizing effect on people that people don't want to be part of mm-hmm. an institution yeah. a collective endeavor where lots of people are doing morally bad things mm-hmm. and i think that's some of what sort of sometimes and it, it's tough because that may be both of those things may be right it may be descriptively the case that a decent number of people engage in a certain class of behaviors, and it may be sort of morally or in a values-based system defensible to say these are seriously problematic, but you combine those two, and it it just puts you in this position that, that makes it really difficult. Yeah. And it, also, yeah. I don't think that people... I think that you're right that people are uncomfortable with a combination of those two things. Like, it's relatively common, and it's really bad. And so when they hear that, they discount one or the other. And so I think what might happen is that people are like, well, if it's relatively common, then it can't be that bad. Right. I feel like that's kind of what Merton is doing is he's saying it's so bad that it can't be that common. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it can actually be both. And I mean, one way to, to soften the blow is what um, Simmons et al. did in their uh, psychology's renaissance chapter where they say that, or I think it was in that, I don't know, in some paper they say, we used to think this was bad, like jaywalking is bad, and now we think it's bad, like, I don't remember, some much more serious offense. Like robbing a robbing bank. Robbing a bank. Yeah. And I think that's a good way yeah. to put it. It's like, look, the the way you can have both something really bad and really common is if people don't understand how bad it is. That's one explanation, mm-hmm. right? Right, um, but then, then that's, again, taking responsibility away from the person, and it becomes less bad, right? So if you say, yeah, you don't understand how bad it is, then what you did is not that bad. Sure, a little bit less bad, but the consequences can still be just as bad, right? Yeah, right, but I guess, like... So there's bad yeah, for science you're talking and... about the consequences and or... The character how, person, yeah. Um... Yeah, so I think separating those yeah, out is really bad. useful. So you can say it was really common, really bad for science. You didn't have to be a really bad person to do it. In fact, the fact that it was common means it can't be something that only outliers do. 
Um, but the consequences could still be really bad. It could still be that like, now that we know this, we really ought to do a lot, you know, to try to curb it. So I want to, I want to shift gears yeah. a little bit, if that's yeah. okay, um, and talk about some of these other norms. Uh, uh, if we have time, and... I want to come back to one other thing in the disinterestedness norm. But... Okay. <laughs> so the, the um, I mean, one of the interesting, another, I mean, they're all super interesting, right? I, I think, you know, universalism is, I feel like there's a, there's a version of it that is very popular, which is the idea that like anybody can be a scientist and we should be open and, and make that possible. Then there's a version that is complicated, which is when you start explicitly talking about diversity in science, mm-hmm. which some people, and, and I, just, I just saw a really interesting article the other day about uh, sort of framing effects on diversity when you talk about it as reducing discrimination, you get much more buy-in, especially from white people and men, than when you talk about it as making, increasing representation or making something more diverse, right? But there's at least a decent number of people who, under some framing, would say science ought to be more diverse or that that would be a sign that we're doing well on this universalism criterion, right? And then I think there's the the thing that Samin brought up, which is in practice, people will sometimes say like, no, I should, well, sometimes they'll come out and say like, I should trust work more from people that have accomplishments or eminence or whatever. And, and other times you just see it as a revealed preference in, in how they go about talking about things and doing their work. Um, it's interesting that when, when you press people on that, what I've found is that people will go to, they won't defend it as a, a norm or a value unto itself, they'll go to instrumental means. They'll say, well, stuff takes expertise. And so I can't see what somebody did in a lab. But if I know they have a good track record, I should use that as a, a prior for judging the work. So they'll try to turn it into an argument about judging the science, not the scientist. And the scientist is just a proxy or whatever. So it's interesting that people kind of find that one, at least in my experience, people find that one hard to defend as an end unto itself as a terminal value, like we should keep lots of goodies and trust listen to people more if they're famous um but in practice people do that uh, regardless of whether they'll defend it or not um people do that and it's really hard to avoid doing mm-hmm. and it's also i think it's complicated because and i think martin talks about this some and others talk about it like prestige is kind of the coin of the realm in science it's it's how we like re, we reward people with prestige with status um as a kind of incentive for doing things that they're supposed to be doing in science and it it has this kind of in, in some sense it's like if it's an incentive if we are awarding prestige for doing the things science is supposed to be doing it kind of incentivizes that blah 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 but then it once we give it to people, they can then use it to not do those things, um, to get away with with doing things that distort it. So it kind of becomes a sort of self-defeating process a little bit, mm-hmm. or at least self-inhibiting process. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the hard things with eminence and these kinds of things is that you, we're not going to get away from it, right? So mm-hmm. we can rail against it like I do a lot, but there's there's no point imagining a world with no eminence because that's not going to happen so then the question is what do we do given that yeah like all of us including me decide what to read partly based on who the authors are how familiar we are Mm -hmm. with either them or their institution or 
people who know them recommending it or whatever, right? Like these networks matter a lot. I think part of it is a volume problem. Like we can't read everything and then decide what we like better. So I think the question is how do we make sure that people who don't get attention because of their status and connections and all that still get discovered if they're doing good work? Um, I mean, what one of the nice things about formal peer review in journals and so on is that every paper gets read by at least the editor. And if it goes out for review, at least a couple more people. I like that system a lot, and I wish we could mm-hmm. import that into the non-journal peer review system, um, making sure like every preprint gets read by a few people. Because um, mm-hmm. otherwise, I yeah, I don't know how how we fix the problem of like people are going to read things by people who are well connected. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, Merton focuses a lot on like bias and discrimination against certain groups, and that that's against the norm of universalism. But even if we got rid of that, there would still be the rich get richer phenomenon. And yeah. so how do we give attention to people who start at the bottom of the totem pole? Right. Which maybe well, I, that I is think those the, things I, oh, sort ahead, of maybe that is the ideal system, like not a system that is free of evidence, as you say, but like a system where people start out in a, in the same spot and then eminence is is like earned, earned in a meritocracy or something like that. Obviously this is not realistic either, but but maybe like not like logically inconsistent or something. Mm-hmm. I I also I was just gonna say that the I mean Samin you talked about the the sort of group differences uh, mattering and then also the kind of rich get richer phenomenon. I think it's really important to recognize how those things intersect, yeah. right? So one of the problems of Matthew effects of sort of rich get richer is small initial differences get right. magnified, right. and so so you don't need to have a like you know, really like heavy handed, uh, you know, no women are allowed in science or, you know, no, minor, you know, no underrepresented minorities are allowed in science system. I mean, those things we might still today have something approximating those in some parts of the world or some parts of science. But even if you don't have that, or even if you have relatively small initial differences, um, those get magnified, the rich get richer. And so the people that have a small initial advantage uh, um, because we use eminence to reward things that eminence gets you, um, they they blow up. Mm-hmm. And Martin alludes a little bit to something like affirmative action or like active ways to try to ensure equality of opportunity. He says that new forms of organization must be introduced to preserve and extend quality of opportunity because the system naturally goes into this yeah default of like rewarding the people who've already been had an advantage yeah and I, I think this is just this is an example of of you know the idea that like we need to be thinking about inclusion and diversity as part of everything is that if you're thinking about the problems of eminence you know recognizing how that intersects with inclusion diversity is a really important piece of the problem that you would miss if you just said we're we're not going to think about that at all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what about I mean, another interesting one, and this is this is one that I think, you know, I, I asked earlier, are these just instrumental norms or are they values? And and to me, the communism norm is is I feel like there are and maybe we don't all have to agree which one it is, but I feel like there are some people that make a very fundamental values based argument for this and some people that make a very instrumental argument. Right. So so mm-hmm. the the values based argument is like 
scientific knowledge should belong yeah. to everyone. Everyone should be able to benefit from it, that, that it's a common good for not just scientists, but for society. And, and we often have public investment in science. Mo you know, a lot of probably most of science gets done through public investment and it's, it's intended to benefit the public. And so there's this kind of values-based argument. Um, but then there's also, you know, an instrumental argument, which is that we can't do cumulative science and build on each other's work and we can't do the disinterestedness stuff unless we actually have access to unless people don't hoard information mm -hmm. whether it's information about how they did their studies whether it's information about what findings they got etc mm -hmm. and that having you know open open data open materials lets us check each other's work and lets us you know reuse somebody else's data mm -hmm. to make a new discovery etc um, and that it's sort of instrumental. And so this is, to me, this is an interesting example of where like people start from different places on this and they, they end up promoting the same kinds of things sometimes for different reasons. And they kind of become allied on issues of open access or open materials or things yeah, like that. That's interesting. I mean, one thing that's an interesting consequence of framing something as like a value versus like a, a practical guideline or whatever, I think is that if you are saying that you think something is important because it's a value, you're saying that like it doesn't really matter if it has, I think you're saying that it doesn't matter if it has better or worse outcomes necessarily. It's like, just like at a basic level, this is necessary. Um, and I do think that's often what people mean or the position that they're coming from, um, which, yeah, I don't know. Um, it avoids questions about evaluating what's better or worse but then maybe um maybe sometimes you want to know the answers to those questions yeah merton also makes another values like claim about communism which is that because science is so cumulative and he uses like the isaac newton quote mm -hmm. about standing on the shoulders of giants that mm -hmm. none of us should have a big ego about it that like basically he talks about the humility of scientific genius <laughs> which i thought was a hilarious <laughs> line um but yeah, the idea that like, don't be so proud of yourself because it wouldn't have been possible if everybody before you hadn't made their work open and transparent. Um, and I think that relates also to like, if you're criticizing a finding or you fail to replicate something, you're not attacking the person you're attacking or you're criticizing the, the phenomenon, which isn't theirs to begin with. So if we have a more communal idea about the finding not belonging to the person, then there's, yeah, like you said, Sandra, there's more openness to criticism and skepticism and things like that so that that's a way in which it's a moral issue a little bit mm -hmm. so maybe we should do organized skepticism before we wrap up i so this is i i find that section of the essay the the whole two paragraphs the, the most the, <laughs> yeah the, it's 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 short and it's also to me kind of opaque so i'm curious one just if you to sort of interpret it the same way i do because i'm not sure i do so you know my interpretation is that it's kind of like all these other things that i'm talking about um organized skepticism means that we don't just try to accomplish them individually or informally that we actually create institutions by which you know i take it to mean professional societies journal editorial boards university administrative procedures for tenure and promotion and all the rest yada 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 so we we kind of institutionalize you know we organize our skepticism um I, and so i'm curious one if you think that's what he's saying and then two if how you think we do on that i guess like i think that the 
I hear the organized part in what you're saying, but I also feel like he's specifically talking about challenging other institutions. Um, and I guess I'm less interested in that norm when it's like applied to other institutions, although I think that's, I guess, important. Um, but I think it's especially important now when applying it to our own institution. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Like, I think that he's saying that we need to be able to, like, scientists need to be able to challenge claims that are made by other groups. And so we should we should insist on data before we, like, assume that the status quo is correct. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I the two paragraphs he has in here make me think that he must explain it more somewhere else. And he's just, like, adding this as an addendum because he doesn't talk about what organized and organized skepticism mean at right. all in these two yeah. paragraphs. The only point... I read into these two paragraphs is summarized by the line, the scientific investigator does not preserve the cleavage between the sacred and the profane. So like we're allowed to challenge things, mm -hmm. even if we all wish that claim were true. So like if it turns out that, you know, something that we thought might help reduce prejudice doesn't, we're allowed to say so, even though that might make us look like we're pro prejudice or whatever. Like, so I think the, yeah, the challenging religious institutions and political institutions and so on, it's like challenging the, the popular and mainstream ideas and separating kind of the values from the empirical um, aspect of it, which I think is obviously very idealistic and much more complicated than he lets on. But that's what I took it to mean in this context. But I agree the label organized skepticism implies something much more like what you were saying, yes. Sanjay. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think also, yeah, Alexa, I mean, I was emphasizing what the organized does for science. And I think the the other side of the coin is uh, Alexa, you know, you brought up the like, he's talking about other institutions, non-scientific institutions. So religion, like Samin brought up, or, you know, I, I think about like climate change denial, for example, mm -hmm. and and how there are powerful economic and political forces working against science. And, and so part of, I think part of what he's maybe also suggesting here, like we form these organizations to look inward and do science well, but also to protect science against other institutions. So like the very last sentence in, in this chapter is a, a, it kind of has a contemporary ring to it. In modern totalitarian society, anti-rationalism and the centralization of institutional control both serve to limit the scope provided for scientific activity. So he's talking about like other kinds of non-scientific institutional control and, you know, in 1942, he was probably thinking of, uh, you know, uh, um, well, I'm, you know, uh, uh, fascism and, and that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting argument that we're both doing it for ourselves to make our science work well, but we're also doing it to defend science. Yeah, I think yeah our, right. to preserve our right to challenge things, even if that is politically risky or otherwise. Yeah. I thought that the article was sort of like, I mean, very ahead of its time, um, but there were parts of it that seemed like they could have easily been written right now. So he says, I think closer to the beginning of the chapter, um, scientists are compelled to um, vindicate the ways of science to man, which I thought was, and he, he also like sort of alludes to this like fear that um, people are losing faith in science and ch challenging um, there's like a rise in anti-intellectualism and stuff like that. So it was like really interesting to read something that was written so long ago that seems 
so relevant. Right well, now. it's interesting because he's the opening paragraphs make it sound like he's saying, "Look, science isn't perfect, and we just like stop. We've we've been able to coast on this reputation of like being so right. great yeah. and whatever, but now we're we're under attack, and we need to like engage in self scrutiny." Right. Um, he says scientists have been jarred into a state of acute self-consciousness and crisis invites self-appraisal and stuff like that but yeah. I felt like the rest of his essay was still pretty uh, rah-rah science <laughs> like I mean because like like we talked about he seems to think that these prescriptive statements are also ac- actual accurate descriptions of what's currently going on which I think is very idealistic yeah um, I yeah that yeah, that he thought we were living out our ideals yeah. instead of advancing them as a thing we should be doing better and you mentioned Sanjay that like maybe some of this was more true at the time and I have no idea either but like one thing I think might have been different back then in general I don't I don't give him the benefit of the doubt that those things were true at the time yeah but I know we're out of time but I just want to raise another point if, if it's okay we can always cut it later but in the disinterestedness section he talks about how scientists have a different relationship to what he calls lay people or the lay clientele than do people like physicians and lawyers because we don't interact directly with lay people and we can't get like direct rewards and positive feedback from them and so on so then we're less likely to engage in like deceptive practices and things like that um and so there's less abuse of expert authority and creation of pseudoscience and stuff like that than there might be like with lawyers or, or doctors pretending to have more expertise than they really do. And I wonder to the extent that that has changed or whatever, that doesn't seem true today. I don't know if it was true then, but today scientists do interact directly with the public and can get very tangible rewards from being popular with non-scientists. Um, and so I wonder, is that a real change? And like, does that undermine, if it's not true that we have this distance from non-scientists that helps us maintain our own standards within ourselves because all that really matters is our reputation within our scientific community. If actually we can go outside the scientific community, even if we're not well-respected in our community, we can still be very successful by appealing directly to the public with our shoddy science. That seems like a problem. I mean, maybe maybe this is a case where what we were just saying about organized skepticism is supposed to come in, Mm. which is if we're doing science in a way that exposes it to market forces for what's popular or cool or exciting, that we're supposed to have the institutions in place to act as a counterweight to that. And so, so if we're going to, because I think most of us, and I would agree with this, you know, I think, or a a lot of scientists would say it is really important to be engaging with the public and telling them about what we're doing Mm -hmm. and, and doing translational work and all this other stuff. And and so I wouldn't say the answer is to like not do that stuff. Stand back from yeah. that, but, but yeah, rather that we we need to understand that that exposes us to new risks, and we need to be clear-eyed and, about what we need to do to counter. Uh, yeah, them. there needs to be consequences if you leverage science's reputation and authority to do pseudoscientific stuff or for your own personal benefit, or yeah. And he talks about that that risk that the, he says the borrowed authority of science bestows prestige on things that are like more like pseudoscience or shoddy science and that mm-hmm. lay people can't really tell the difference. And in fact, um, if anything, he says, myths will seem more plausible and are certainly more comprehensible to the general public than accredited scientific theories. So now that there is this channel for people to go directly to the public, I think we need to make sure we have those checks and balances that if someone's abusing science's credibility and selling out science to, for their own personal benefit or or even if they don't have a self-interested motive they're just doing a bad job they're promoting mm-hmm. shoddy science they're harming 
the entire scientific community by doing that and we need to be able to catch that and stop it or somehow impose costs or consequences mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's all those damn podcasts yeah <laughs> going directly to the public no gatekeepers and maybe that's uncurated. a good place is that a good place to end yeah, i think so yeah. <laughs> yeah. all right well thank you all for listening to the scientifically corrupting pseudoscience promoting black goat podcast or not mm-hmm. uh and uh yeah thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time Thank you.